There's so much data in the world. Pictures, videos, text, and audio. Machine learning brings the promise of being able to use this data to answer hard questions. The most obvious example being Google. A machine learning algorithm recommends the best result catered to your individual profile. But it's not just Google anymore. All companies are rushing to utilize their data to build better products. It's no longer novel to use machine learning in your products. It's now an expectation. As the industry is burgeoning, companies are building their own ML teams, and entrepreneurs are coming into the space to solve problems of how to scale these technologies. In other words, create the ML operations infrastructure. Today, as things have changed, we sit down with one of those entrepreneurs that are helping create the next wave of tools for your company's ML teams. Mr. Hyun Kim, he saw a problem with how companies were using machine learning. For all, all of these projects, the first thing you need to do is collect data, label data, and that takes a large chunk of your time. So I thought this shouldn't be the way it should be done. You know, there were a lot of new research coming out from academia that just wasn't getting applied to the industry, and I thought the bottleneck to that was the data. So you know, there's always new research coming out. In the academia, using you know standard benchmark open source datasets, but if you want to apply that to the industry, each company、uh, has to come up with their own unique dataset that fits their application scenario, and that takes a lot of time. So I wanted to solve that problem. Hyun and his team of researchers and engineers have built Superb AI, a company that is creating the new standard for ML ops. Basically, we we give them all the toolings, the toolsets that they can use to. Debug their issues. So, if they think their data labeling is too slow, we give them the tools to train、uh, our our base AI on their data using just a few clicks. And if they think they're spending too much time on data auditing, we also give them the appropriate tools for them to automate that piece. And we give them the tutorials, we give them the、uh, best practices, we give them you know, documentations, and help them use our tools to fix their problems. Whether you're a product leader or ML engineer, Superb AI will help you execute your projects in less time. You know, the majority of ML teams spend more than 50% of their time managing training datasets. Stick around to learn how Superb AI is reducing that time with their auto labeling and collaboration capabilities. Welcome to THC, where we unpack the ever-changing technology economy. Hang out with Jed, Shikar, and Adrian as we tackle the industries of tomorrow. This is Things Have Changed. It's actually a, a, an interesting event in my life. Back then, in 2016, I was a PhD student at Duke University, studying robotics, deep learning, computer vision. And、um, I was at that time more interested in robotics than AI, for example.、Um, and it was, it was actually second semester of my first year of my PhD.、Um, I remember it, and、um, I, I think it was March.、Um, and we were kind of like debating、uh, with my lab mates. You know, do you think Lisa Dole will, will win? Do you think AlphaGo will win?、Um, and it was 
pretty much split half and half, um, even amongst the you know AI research engineers and you know the students there. And you know, like like you all know, AlphaGo won, um, like Ford won, and I think I think or even amongst the academics, um, there were some skeptics um, as to what AI can do, and even more so in the industry. So um, after that event, um, so with a bit of background, um, I'm from Korea. So I was born and raised um, in Korea. I lived in Singapore in the US. And, and you know, the game of Go is really popular in Korea. Um, you know, kids are you know, taught how to play the game of Go during you know, their elementary school, middle school. And I think everyone, every single person in Korea probably thought, you know, Lisa Dole will win. And I think I think this event brought a lot of shock to basically everyone in Korea, and that um, it basically sparked a, a huge movement in Korea where all of these um, tech companies like Samsung, LG, those guys, um, they realized the the power of AI. Um, they realized that you know what they thought about AI uh, has to change. So they started to invest a lot into AI immediately. So, um, so after that event, you know, I basically got um, um, basically got scouted um, from this company in Korea called SK SK Telecom. It's like Verizon of the US. So they they started a corporate research lab just for AI. I think right like two months after AlphaGo, and it was the same for a company like LG, um, like companies like Samsung and everyone. So it basically changed my career trajectory. So I, I planned to you know finish my PhD and maybe move over to uh, you know the Silicon Valley, you know work for companies like I don't know Google, maybe as a research engineer, maybe you know do a postdoc, become a professor. But then you know the event basically shifted my career to become uh, you know more industry focused person, and then eventually um, leading to me starting a company i didn't realize how significant it was that moment specifically but we were like re-watching some of the videos of you know the the tournament and Mm -hmm. you can see like the inevitability in the the person who lost his face Mm -hmm. he's like what just happened this this should not happen yeah so i don't think i don't think he ever uh imagined a computer beating him right yeah you can just see it on his face he's like did that just happen and and it's this this feeling of what is my place in the world now it's it's kind of right. it's kind of weird like the reason why i was able to spot that is because there are literally like youtube comments talking about go to minute this and you can see basically what he <laughs> thought the future of humanity is <laughs> yep, it's yep. it takes a lot of like creativity I, th- I think that was the the big thing there, right? Is is that Lisa Dahl was, you know, as the the Vice videos came out about that mm-hmm. specific event. I watched that Vice video, freaking brilliant, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. That it it educated me to the number of of possibilities, um, possible moves that you have at Go, yeah. right? Ten to ten to the hundred seventieth, bro. That's he. That's I can't even imagine how many possibilities you could go from from each move. You know, mm-hmm. and, and the amount of creativity for me was like, okay, there's no way that shit is going to happen with AI. But I guess that was a significant moment, dude. Appreciate yeah, yeah. That. And and um, just to, you know, fun fun fact. Um, so Lisa all retired um, just a couple of years after that event. And I think 
I, I'm not a Go expert, but what I hear is um, there are certain like rules to Go or, or like um, well-known moves like openings of chess mm-hmm. um, that you know everyone used. But then after AlphaGo came out, you know everything changed. So there, there, there are rules that you know everyone, all the human Go players thought was the you know best patterned moves, basically wow. changed. Um, so AlphaGo changed the uh, basically it, it created a breakthrough in the way humans play Go. So I think AlphaGo changed um, what everyone thought was the best move to play at, at certain points. Wow, this is 3,000 years after yeah. <laughs> people have had time yeah. to master the game, yeah. know all the opening strategies, yeah, yeah, common, exactly. yeah. common moves. Uh, this is really relevant because I just watched uh, The Queen's Gambit uh, yeah. on Netflix. Great show. <laughs> and so that got me into like a, a black hole of just like chess. And did you order a chess board? Because the, apparently that's what people did right after. <laughs> the chess Bible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the, the downloads for the apps were just like skyrocketing. Oh for uh after that came out it was really big so you know AlphaGo happens you were working in robotics and then you started to kind of get more focused on ai i wanted to kind of figure out what was what was like the was the AlphaGo really that moment where you were like wow like ai has this possibility and there's so much that can be done with it um so it was more of like these companies started investing very, very heavily on AI research, um, AI research engineering. And it basically opened up a lot of opportunities for me. So before AlphaGo, I think I think I had basically two choices. One is to become a researcher and stay in the academia or become a an engineer or, or, or industry-focused researcher and work for, you know, one of those um, Silicon Valley companies. But after the AlphaGo, a lot more companies started to invest in AI. They started uh, launching new AI research labs. And I think that just opened up a lot of opportunities for me. And um, I always wanted to sometime, you know, go back to Korea and work for, work there at least a couple of years. So I decided to actually took a, I actually took a leave for two years uh, from my PhD, went back to Korea, worked there for two years, and then the plan was to come back and finish my PhD, but then, you know, that didn't happen. You know, I started the company. <laughs> no, and better pastures for sure. So was it just at SK where you decided, where you, you know, were able to, maybe you were working on a similar problem where um, you're trying to, I guess, I'm foreboding here, but you you saw the issue about the whole labeling aspect of of data and then decided there could be a business application for something like this. <laughs> Yeah, so so I think both during my times, uh, during my PhD and also at my times at SK, I found myself spending a lot of time just handling data. So you know, for example, during my research, my my PhD focus was basically having robots learn how to manipulate objects, um, and that was basically based on a lot of trial and errors. So like a robot would try to pick up an object, it fails, mm-hmm. and then tries to learn why it failed so the next time it does better so there's a lot of you know data gathering um, both using simulations and and using real robots and also during uh, my times at sk we worked on you know, things like self-driving um, you know smart speakers game ai you know i, I worked a little bit on starcraft ai um, <clears throat> and for all, all of these projects you know 
the first thing you need to do is collect data, label data, and that takes you know a large chunk of your time. So I thought you know this shouldn't be the way it should be done. Um, you know there were a lot of new research coming out from the academia that just wasn't getting applied to in the, the industry. And I thought the bottleneck to that was the data. So you know there are always new research coming out in the academia using you know you know like standard benchmark open source data sets. But if you want to apply that to the industry, you know each company uh, has to come up with their own unique data set that fits their you know application scenario, and you know that takes a lot of time. So I wanted to um, solve that problem. And um, initially, I <clears throat> did some research um, at SK. So research published some papers on ways that you know, you know new new techniques that can enable researchers to spend less time labeling data and still end up you know being able to create or train um, AI algorithms that perform as well. Um, and then eventually, I thought you know that the technology is getting matured um, and sh should be ready to be applied um, as a product. So that's when I started the company. And, and did you start this company kind of just on the side as a side project, or did you feel like, okay, I need to put together a team. I need to, you know, put all, all my time, invest all my energy into this. Uh, how did you go about, you know, approaching and starting uh, and also forming the team? I mean, you had to have, you had a really uh, solid academic background. So did you really kind of poach or like recruit <laughs> academics to really like help take on this challenge with you? Um, I basically poached um, a couple of my colleagues. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yep. Love it. <laughs> uh, yep. So we had a great team. Uh, basically, you know, af after AlphaGo, you know, companies started investing a lot into AI research. And basically, my team had a lot of great researchers, engineers um, from, you know, many universities or other different um, uh, engineering backgrounds. So there were a lot of potential co-founders available on my team. And uh, yeah, I was able to poach some of them. <laughs> you were just like, hey, you know how I work. I know how you work. <laughs> we're going to create a superb AI team. And then you're like, superb AI. <laughs> clever there, clever. Yep, how, yep. How, was, how was that ideation process for the name? Because when I saw it, I was like, this is, this is a lot of hype. You know, mm -hmm. like, <laughs> yeah, what yeah. is this name? <laughs> yeah, so um, I think, Back then, um, the, the the very first naming idea was actually um, su superb, as in like you know, do you know supervised learning? What that is? Yeah. Um, yeah. So a lot of labeling. Um, I mean, so a lot, a lot of the AI that goes into um, you know real world applications, it's mostly supervised learning, and supervised learning is. Um, a type of you know machine learning technique that requires a lot of data labeling, and you know since we wanted to make that more efficient, uh, you know we took the word supervised and then just used the first bit superb, and then we thought, hey, that that sounds a bit weird, so like, we should we should change that to superb, right? So that's 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 the story. Yeah, it's pretty simple. I love yeah. that story. As we're kind of getting into how you know you built superb AI. We wanted to see like the first use cases, like what was the first problem you wanted to solve and you know, how did that materialize into the company? Cause there had to have been one problem yep. where you were just like, and, and similar to what you were talking about earlier, what was that first use case? 
It's definitely data labeling. Um, when you collect a bunch of data and label them, and then you train an AI model, a neural network, um, the, accurate, the accuracy of the model improves, you know, uh, not, I wouldn't say linearly, but if you have more labeled data, the accuracy improves, right? And I think it was very obvious, and I think a lot of people knew um, that you could somehow utilize AI that's not perfectly accurate, but still somehow leverage that in labeling more data, right? Let's say you have an AI that's maybe like 50% accurate, it's not usable. Uh, it, it can't be deployed on like, like a self-driving car, but there's some value to it uh, in a way that it can be used for data labeling. So maybe if you use the AI to label more data, maybe 50% of the labels are accurate. So you can only work on the remaining 50% uh, manually. So that was the initial idea. So it would be basically like a back and forth thing between AI and human. So human would manually label a, a small bunch of data, use that to train a model. And then now you have like 50% accurate AI, use that to label more data. And then a human would just go in and verify, edit the output of the AI. And then now you have you know, twice as much data and use that to train version two of your model. And then the cycle repeats, right? So it was, it was a very simple idea. And um, we wanted to um, basically show that it works. Uh, it's cheaper, it's faster, it's more accurate. So that was our initial um, MVP product. The classic example of um, you have a, a bunch of pictures of trees, mm. different trees, a tree in winter without leaves, a tree in summer, pine tree, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And then the human categorized these all as trees, and now you get the AI um, to kind of learn that these are the trees. So then you provide, so now these photos are labeled mm -hmm. very specifically, right? So now the AI actually, when you, when you add small deviations to it, like say you, you provide trees with in fall and summer, and then you show um, like a winter tree, which with fewer leaves, it can predict that. And then you're just solidifying the, the AI platform by, by giving it cleaner data and more or less. Yes. Yeah. I think, I, I think, yeah, that's, that's more or less correct. So uh, I think a better example would be um, like a classical example is um, detecting cats and dogs. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Images, right. <laughs> yeah. So let's say, let's say I initially label hundred images, uh, you know, 50 cats, 50 dogs, right. And have the AI uh, learn that. And then now I have a next batch of say 500 images. Now the the AI that I trained with the initial 100 image batch, uh, it may be you know 50% correct, maybe 60%, right? I use that to categorize the next batch of images, the 500 images. Now that you know the the, the output of the AI is not perfect, so a human labeler or or human you know, data QA person has to go in. Uh, you know, visualize, verify, edit the output of the AI. So maybe you know, 60% of cat images are tagged as cats. The remaining 40% may be misclassified as dogs. So a person would go in and change the uh, tag from you know, dog to cat. Now that is uh, that takes less time 
than a human just going in and labeling 500 images from scratch. Super iterative process. Yep. Okay. And a lot of man hours, it sounds like. Labeling sounds like, um, you know, maybe next to data collection has a lot of input for just really manual work, right? Who typically does that labeling piece? Like, is that the ML researcher who spent his life studying ML and is down there, like, literally labeling shit um, for <laughs> hours? Or do they outsource that sometimes? Mm -hmm. And what's more prevalent in the industry right now? It, it depends on the application. So if it's an application where um, little little or no background knowledge is required, like self-driving, uh, pretty much everyone can recognize cars and traffic lights. Uh, it can be outsourced to you know crowdsourced workers there are companies uh that recruit train and manage these crowdsourced labors um for data labeling um these are mostly you know uh companies that utilize the workforce in developing world countries uh, could be southeast asia south asia uh eastern europe africa yeah um and, and latin america and for cases where the data is sensitive or, or there's a lot of data privacy um, into in, 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 the, in the data, the, then the companies have to um, label the data in-house. So they will recruit, hire a team of data labelers and data labeling team managers, QA, QC engineers, and so on, and basically do it everything in-house. Um, so this is, um, for example, the case for Tesla. Uh, I think they, it, it, I think it's known that they operate their own in-house labeling team to label their data. And also, also uh, the third case is where um, specific uh, domain knowledge is required. So um, for things like medical images, um, you, you don't want to rely labeling medical images on you know, crossroads workers. Like you want to have doctors or at least, at least med students to just label these images. So there are different types of labelings. Yeah, it's so interesting because, uh, like, every capture that you do on Google, right, to to show that you're actually a human and not a robot, mm -hmm. right, is all traffic lights. It yep. is yep. Uh, zebra crossings. It is mm -hmm. identify a boat. Like a car needs right. to know what a boat is, but I guess it does. Identify mm -hmm. the water. You know, there's there's a lot of data collection that they're just they've just dumped on the public to figure out. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I've been doing that. How, how many years has it been that we've been using CAPTCHA and just doing traffic light stuff? Like 15? So right. the, the <laughs> data that they have is so concrete as well. It's like, yeah, what's, uh, it's kind of crazy to think the, the extent to which these companies are using, um, getting value out of just mundane activities like this yeah yeah i think i think uh i think it's pretty unfair <laughs> that google gets to do that yeah um it's basically free labeling right you yeah you, yeah it's it's like global worldwide crowdsourced labeling for yeah <laughs> it's ridiculous because what i do is i have like this vpn setup so it's always yeah. routing it to a different server in a different country so every site i go in i need to uh, do the capture and i'm like how many years have i been doing this these guys might have such a solid <laughs> database yeah so i think all, all that data you know might go into i don't know google maps maybe waymo i don't know where yeah, it goes yeah. to but i think you know it's, it's a huge database yeah. they've literally crowdsourced 
the data that goes behind Google Maps, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, yep, yep. So it seems like the same, there would be a lot of variation to kind of deal with, right? A lot of noise that you might be dealing with. Now, you are a um, company that works with works with clients and other companies trying to better curate their data and get insights out of it, right? So how does that process look like? Because companies have different data, right? Or do you stick to one line of um, market segment? Like say you just look at, say for example, just cars. So now that the algorithm that you have knows what cars are and are is a bit more in tune with the segment that you're working with? Good. That's a good question. Um, so a lot of the AI that we use uh, on our product is designed to either automate data labeling or automate data QA, QCing or data cleansing or any of these you know processes that I just talked about. And um, initially, these models or these AIs that we have in-house that's trained on uh, a large database of um, open source data sets that, and, and, and oftentimes these cover um, like common objects. For example, one of the most popular um, open source data sets called uh, COCO data set. And it's, it's, it's an acronym for common objects in context. So, you know, these are like hundred different objects, like cars, person, you know, like, I don't know, baseball, cup, bottle, whatever, right? So initially, initially the, the models are trained on these open source data sets. And, um, and then in addition to that is the ability to easily fine tune and customize our AI using a small piece of, a small portion, small portion of our client's data. So you can think of it as like we have a, a root or a base um, set of AI models, and based based on each client's data, it will basically kind of evolve and and become uh, more customized to each client's um, data. And 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 our our core tech is being able to do that without any human intervention. So it would it would be pretty easy to do it with human intervention, but um, it wouldn't be very scalable as a business. So we need to be able to do that on fully autopilot. And it, it's something called auto ML. So it's a, it's a part of uh, machine learning that makes the AI learn by itself without any human intervention. Like where do you start to learn their database, learn the way their operations are going and find inefficiencies or, oh, you could 10x your uh, processes by you know using our product here like where do you start when you just get a data dump of all this information from a company and what they're working on basically we we give them all the toolings the tool sets that they can use to debug their issues so if they think their data labeling is too slow we give them the tools to uh, you know train uh, our, our base AI on their data using just a few clicks and if they think they're spending too much time on data auditing, we also give them the appropriate tools for them to automate that piece. So we don't actually go in and like do the work for themselves. We, we give them the tools and we give them the tutorials to give them the uh, best practices. We give them, you know, you know, 
documentations and help them use our tools to fix their problems. Interesting. And, you know, I come back to that, that thought that, okay, you create like a skeleton, like a framework, and then you kind of deploy it to, you know, where it's, where you, where you see fit, uh, whatever fits better for, I guess, that client or so. So is this the gap, you know, within the market where everyone wants AI scalable, technology they they are sitting on mountains of data but they need a way such that they can scale to their specific needs and as a business for you you don't want to be reliant only on one client you have many clients so you kind of need to build a portfolio of i guess models that works better in different scenarios i see largely two groups of clients. One is very high-tech um, companies that already have so much data, they have the engineering um, resources, um, and they just want to be able to increase the accuracy of their models um, to you know the extremes, right? Maybe they are a self-driving company competing with Tesla. I don't know, it could be uh, like a, you know, physical security, CCTV camera that's competing against others um, based on their provision accuracy. And and the other group is um, actually oftentimes traditional industry companies that have the data, but don't have the resources to build AI models. And and I think um, interestingly, to my surprise, um, both groups of clients solve value in our you know, custom customizable AI that's built into our product. So, you know, I, I initially I thought, you know, being able to quickly train a custom AI model and use that to um, accelerate the data labeling process would be more uh, beneficial to the second group of people that actually don't have the resources or the knowledge to train the AI themselves. Um, that was the case, but um, it was also interesting that these high-tech companies also found value in that because it's like they know how to do it if they had the time, but they don't want to spend time on it. So they want to spend 100% of their time building, you know, better algorithms, building better, you know, uh, whatever, better self-driving AI instead of spending time on uh, ways to um, accelerate or, or automate their data labeling, data QA pipelines. I think I think I think these companies will will go into that in maybe a few years, but I think right now their focus is 100% on improving their model accuracy. For example, instead of you know spending less time, less money on the whole data labeling, data management pipeline. So yeah, uh, something you said that just triggered that the the thought in my mind was like a good friend of mine who is really. Um, equipped with these skills, he works as a AI architect for Google, but he does not. He's not in Google. Like he's um, he's part of this company that Google outsources certain amount of work, be it you know certain amount of data that he comes in and he's working on those models 
as a as a contract for the company so they have like their own little deals with companies because they want to focus their research teams on certain aspects of um the process what are the highest risks within you know the machine learning deployment pipeline right now because of issue tracking because of the ways that you're able to interact with different parts of the ml process you're able to determine a more accurate um, timeline for when this is going to get deployed. The problem essentially that you're solving is how fast can we get this to deployment and how easy can it be? Like if you think about software engineering, um, there has been that, you know, DevOps movement for you know, so long, right? There are so many um, software engineering toolings and it's not just toolings, but more like the way way of working, like there are like uh, core principles to DevOps, right? And I think with that came, um, you know, companies were able to better um, estimate now you know, how long it's going to take to you know, build something and, and productize it, um, and also be able to uh, better collaborate, you know, with cross-functional teams, you know, make make their projects more observable, uh, make their projects more measurable, you know, automate a lot of processes, uh, you know continuously improve on like multiple iterations over their engineering cycles. And, and I think that something similar to that should happen and is already happening in machine learning. So, um, so similar to you know, DevOps, it's called MLOps. And sometimes the data part of the ML, MLOps stack is called DataOps. So I think, I think that change in um, shift in mindset should happen. Um, that's the first thing. And I think another thing is um, there's no no canonical stack in machine learning. So for software engineering, like you have, let's say you're, you're, if you want to use um, source code, source code management, you are either going to use GitHub, GitLab, or Bitbucket, right? Or if you want to use cloud, it's either AWS, GCP, or Azure. Um, so there's that you know stack that you know everyone uses. But in machine learning and in, in data labeling or data management, there's no that stack yet. I think the um, machine learning um, or machine learning ML ops and data ops market is a bit too early. There are so many companies coming out um, that you know these these people they don't actually. It, it's hard, it's very hard for engineers and researchers to know what kind of toolings are available out there, um, like which tools. Are going to solve their problem, or which tool um, integrates or goes well with which other tool? And I think um, you know, companies or these engineers will start to pick up or learn, you know, or start to build these canonical stack. And then I think then we'll have you know more visibility, more measurability. Um, and then I think the whole you know machine learning projects getting shut down midway. I think that will decrease as time goes. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad. I, I read that uh, that link that you had put in for um, towards data science. Yes, I didn't understand 90% of it, but that's fine. I understood <laughs> the main point, which was that you're building the infrastructure to be able to provide these services and to scale. That's really the thing, right? It's similar to what you're doing with your company as well, is that you're trying to scale, you know, MLOps. Like, yep. we need to have teams that are able to do certain parts of the processes in order for this to be well adopted, you know, across the board. As we're just discussing and you're 
bringing up, you know, there's so many companies going into this. Just on this podcast alone, which has only been around for a year, we've had so many AI guests. We've had AI in journalism, you know, finding ways to create frameworks for in writing. We've had AI for, you know, autonomous driving, which is kind of the mainstream. We see it everywhere. All these companies are working on it. Um, We've even had AI for synthetic media, just creating videos, a a person and making their lips sync. Yeah. So it, you know, we're just seeing all of these applications come in and, you know, you're, you're a founder, you're the CEO of your company. You're, you're basically the leader. Your whole team is looking to you as guidance, as a leader of what your, what the direction of your company is. So as you kind of look forward of, where you see this market going like what is the the tam like what is the market that you're basically working to i don't have a number in mind uh but um thinking about the you know the market landscape in general um there are a lot of different sections or portions of the machine learning development cycle the ml ops industry that you know, many different companies are tackling. So, for example, there are companies that focus on data collection, some companies that focus on data labeling, on training, data analytics, model analytics, model deployment, uh, infrastructure monitoring, and all of these, you know, so and so forth, right? And right now, the, the ML ops um, market is very nascent, very early in their stage. Um, and so these companies are tackling very um, niche problems, right? Um, for example, we started out with, um, like I mentioned in the very, very early earlier part of this um, podcast, that we wanted to automate the data labeling piece, right? And as these companies, including ourselves, tackle the one niche problem that they started out with, uh, it's going to expand out naturally, right? And I think in in a few years, um, there will be companies that will start to overlap, right? So for example, maybe a data collection company could start to overlap with data labeling companies or data uh, model training companies would start, you know, overlapping with model deployment, right? As they, you know, as the companies grow, as they uh, find um, more uh, clients or markets that they want to tackle. So these overlap will happen. And I think, at that point, a lot of market consolidation will happen, right? Companies acquiring each other, becoming you know these massive companies, going IPO and stuff like that. Um, and given that uh, you know future in you know, maybe five years down the line, um, very high level, I, I try to think very st- strategically, um, like which companies should we be uh, going together with? Like like for example, like. Um, the whole point of MLOps, data ops, is being able to give a lot of toolings, tool sets for these engineers to um, stitch together and automate all of their pipelines. So inherently, there's a lot of integration components to MLOps, data ops. So uh, trying to think, you know, which players in the market should we uh, be integrating with? Should we do partnerships with? I think that's a high-level strategy uh, question that's on my mind always. Um, I don't have the answer to. I mean, if I had the answer, I'd be a billionaire already. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's something on a very high level. Uh, it's a very important question for me. Yeah. yeah, it's it's such a hard thing to kind of digest to see what, 
how niche a product can be and how big the size could be. You know, like we were just chatting about how DocuSign is a e-signature company, mm-hmm. right? And it's right. $40 billion. dollars forty four zero with billion. <laughs> just a sign shit. Just a sign shit. But yeah. So like when people, when it just came on the scene, people were like, this is just an e-signature company. There's nothing different. But then their whole point was, we are going to digitize the agreement. And companies across the world, people across the world have agreements. We are going to digitize that. So it's like small niches, like you just mentioned, like, you know, there are many stages to this, many levels to this, um, to the ML ops procedure process that companies go through, right? That you work with companies on. Each could be its own category defining segment, you know, like, it's just crazy to think how, like the whole world is software. So like the the reach you can't really quantify certain things because you could go vertical and just you know have that whole category so it's interesting to think about so yeah. i mean as as we're talking about like different niche parts of the industry and integration between products right superb ai is a, a saas platform yep so there's a lot of opportunity for you and your team to be integrating with products because you're kind of doing that already, mm-hmm. right? Um, towards certain parts of the procedures. So I guess like what are your your um, strongest suits, strongest parts of the, um, the suite product? Like mm-hmm. what do you show off to everybody? And, you know, when I look on your website, it looks like it's labeling. Mm-hmm. But t- tell me if I'm wrong. Um, there are a couple of things. Um... So currently, the the two things that um, I like to emphasize, or actually the one thing that I like to emphasize the most is the labeling automation. And there are a few pieces to it. So number one is the labeling itself. So um, you know, initially, our, our AI was only able to recognize maybe 100 different object classes, right? And now it's, it's evolved using you know, AutoML or couple other advanced ML techniques. And now it's it's able to adapt to each client's data set, right? And that only takes maybe a few hundred images, uh, a few hundred labeled images, and maybe, I think it's actually like four clicks and one hour <laughs> after you will have a, a, a trained model that's fine-tuned to each client's data. And the clients can immediately use that to label, um, label more of their data. So that's that's what what we call custom auto label. So the initial auto label was that the model that was able to detect hundred different object classes. Now the custom auto label is you know being able to customize to each client's data. So that's that's one piece. And the second piece is um, when our custom AI um, labels the client's images. It not only outputs the labels, but it also outputs uh, its measure of how difficult the image was to label and how difficult each object within the image was difficult to um, detect, right? So um, that's very useful for data auditing. Um, so instead of having everyone, uh, like all the crossroads workers go in and manually you know, visualize, verify, edit all of the outputs of the AI, 
we can prioritize and sample based on how the AI thought, you know, the image was difficult, right? So let's say you have, you know, you know, a million images that you want to label instead of manually inspecting every single image or, or, or instead of um, sampling like 10% or 1% of the whole data set, you'll be able to more intelligently uh, select which ones to audit, right? And these are usually uh, very um, complex, dense images where there are a lot of different objects in the scene, could be a lot of occlusions, could be uh, you know, blurry or dark images. Um, it's, it's not, um, it's not uh, actually 100% um, interpretable or like we don't know why the AI thinks this image was difficult, but for, for some reason it was difficult. And if a human user goes in and you know clicks on these images, it usually is very, very dense, difficult. Um, yeah. So that's 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 what's what's called um, uncertainty estimation technique that we baked into our auto labeling product. So combined combining one and two, we can have our users very, very quickly label data and audit their data and use that to train their models. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I wanted to dive really quickly into uh, the clients that you're working with, the companies, you know, you have the high tech ones and the ones that are just getting into using AI uh, in their businesses. And also, you know, you're working with companies all across Asia and the US. Um, what's, how has it been like working with these different companies? How do you, you know, figure out what's the best w approach to work with them? Um, do you like have a sales team? Are you, you know, just reaching out to these companies yourself and saying <laughs> you're head of growth and <laughs> also have the CEO hat on? Uh, what's that um, like as so, an early startup? So we, we have two offices, one in um, California, one in Seoul, Korea. Um, so initially, you know, like you mentioned, I put on the head of growth hat <laughs> and reached out to the U.S. customers. Now we have a, a, a very solid team in the U.S. Um, so our U.S. team is for you know, go-to-market, sales, marketing, all of that. Um, Korea, we do, we do most of our um, product engineering in Korea. Uh, there's a lot of um, engineering talent in Korea that we can utilize. So we do that. And in Korea, we also have a go-to-market team that's more focused on the APAC, starting with Korea and then expanding out to maybe, you know, Japan and Singapore, maybe South Asia and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so the cross-border, cross-Pacific operation is an interesting challenge. Um, and um, it's, it's one that I'm enjoying. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting problem to solve. Um, so like, how do you have your product team, uh, sync with your U S team as often as possible, you know, and how like the product team will deliver like the product roadmaps, the, the go-to-market team, the U S will deliver customer feedbacks to the product team. Like, I think, I think, um, it's an interesting challenge, and, but with, with the pandemic, everyone going remote, it's not very different from all these companies in the U S yeah. So, like, we are fascinated because, you know, the three of us are from just three different parts in the world, right? So how is how are the interactions between these executives, business leaders that you interface with in the U.S. versus Asia? And, you know, what's the direction each is taking with regards to this this technology? I was, I was reading some article where it's like, the the amount of tech that is within a daily life in 
be it Japan, South Korea, is just so much more than what an American sees. It's it's staggering, you know. So the the go to market is so much more quicker there. Um, so yeah, would love your thoughts on that difference, and I guess just looking forward. Yeah. Um, so it's it's very interesting, and it's a um, learning experience for me as well. Um, so I, for example, I see like the U.S. market is definitely more mature in terms of ML ops data ops. I think, you know, the Silicon Valley companies are driving the AI of the world. So, you know, inherently they're more mature. I, th- I think they're maybe, you know, three to five years ahead of what's being, you know, developed in Korea or in APAC. Wow. So, so, so when I approach our clients or our pr- prospective clients in US and Korea, their response is very different. So for example, if I go to our US uh, prospects and, you know, like do our demo, uh, tell them our value pops. Um, they Im- immediately get it, and their question is like, "How much is it, or how is it different from your competitors?" Classic, classic. <laughs> <laughs> how much yeah. do you and, want? Yeah. <laughs> and 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 compared to that, like uh, in Korea or in APAC, it's more like they don't, they haven't thought about this kind of product yet, and sometimes they don't even. Uh, know that they need something like this to uh, better or, or make make their ML teams more efficient. So it's more like we're, we're educating them um, rather than it's direct sales. So that's that's one thing that's different. Also, uh, you mentioned something about the, the technology adoption in Korea is much, much faster. Um, I think I think it's true. But um, so the U.S. is um, the tech adoption in, say, the Silicon Valley is, is faster than Korea, but on average across the U.S., uh, I think Korea is you know faster. So there's that difference. And um, Korea market is you know, relatively small compared to the U.S. So I think I think within a- Asia or within APAC, we're always looking to go outside of Korea. Um, so immediately right next to us is you know, Japan, Singapore, like I mentioned. And then I think there's a lot of uh, untapped opportunity in, for example, uh, South Asia or even uh, uh, the Middle Eastern region. So potentially that's that's maybe our you know, third office location um, in the future. I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, the future of this space, right? The space that's that's creating the MLOps engine. You know, any predictions, any like tipping points that we're seeing beyond, you know, Lisa Dole's loss, um, cry but you know what is that next tipping point and where do you see it going forward yep um so i haven't read a lot of research papers recently obviously but um even even given that i do see um this thing called self-supervised learning uh it's it's almost like a buzzword or some might say it's it's a hype but i think there's something to it so for for the listeners that might not be familiar um, so supervised learning, like I mentioned earlier, uh, is based on a pair of data. So you have the raw data, like image, video, text, whatever, and you pair that up with uh, what's called a label, right? So for images, it could be a tag saying it's a cat or it's a dog, right? And you use that pair to train a model. Now, uh, self-supervised learning is, uh, it's, 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 the accuracy is much, much higher 
than other methods like unsupervised learning, where you learn without the label piece. But obviously, you need to create the label, so it's very expensive. Um, now, self-supervised learning is an interesting concept where you actually create the labels using the raw data itself. So it, you're basically generating the labels for free. So for, exa for example, um, let's say you have uh, an image of a, of a cat. Um, maybe you rotate it 90 degrees and give it to a machine and have it uh, learn how to predict or, or have it learn to um, output how to correctly position or rotate the image back to its original position. Or, or maybe you, you cut up the image into you know, three by three or four by four grid and mix it up, it's like a, like a puzzle, and have the AI try to um, reorganize the tiles so that the, the, you get the original image. So you can kind of see how the label is free because you, you manipulate the original image and that's the label, right? And using that uh, self-supervised learning framework, uh, I think, so, so the, the AI model is actually um, learning a more abstract concept of you know, the world. So instead of being able to detect cars with an image, it's being able to learn or abstractly conceptualize what a car is. So, um, yeah, so it, it, it's, it's making some breakthroughs, I think, um, from mostly from research that comes out of Google, Facebook, and all these guys. Um, and I think um, us as a startup, um, it's hard to create a very original, you know, self-supervised learning breakthrough research ourselves. So I think it's, it's our job to translate a lot of the research that comes out and put it into our product so our clients can use it to better uh, accelerate their machine learning uh, development data management pipelines. That was a beautiful ending. That was a beautiful ending. You know, wanted to give you the spotlight and, and say what you will to our guests and where can they reach out to you? Where can they learn about Superb AI? Um, yeah, so uh, we're Superb AI. Uh, we provide a data management platform called Superb AI Suite. Um, if you are having trouble labeling data, if you think you're spending too much time managing data, uh, feel free to contact us. You can visit our website at www.superb-ai.com. You can search on Google. Um, hopefully it's the first one that appears on the search results. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, there's a contact form. Uh, you can you know, fill out that form and we'll, we'll reach out to you. And that's how we met. Okay. All right. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for listening to our show this week. You could subscribe to us. And if you're feeling generous, well, you could even leave us a review. Trust me, it goes a long, long way. You could also follow THC at THC underscore pod on Twitter and LinkedIn. This is Things Have Changed.